Hello and welcome to Changed My Mind, the show where we talk to leaders about a time they changed their mind and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, CEO and founder of the Depolarization Project based at Stanford in California. Hosting alongside me today is Alex Chesterfield, who's a politician and behavioural scientist um, based in the UK. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, Ali. I'm good, thank you. Very good. How are you? I'm okay. The election's coming up for you, aren't they? Yes. We've got about uh, 10 weeks to go now. Actually, nine weeks from this weekend. Oh, well, we'll be keeping everything crossed for you. Thank you Um, very much. (laughs) I'm feeling semi-confident. Yeah, I, I don't envy you some of the hours that are involved in the next few weeks. I, uh, that, that much is, is for sure. It's always pretty punishing. Yeah, we're going on a bins and not Brexit line, so fingers crossed. Yeah, well, I think bins is probably uh, an easier one to negotiate than Brexit. Um, absolutely. <laughs> which does bring us on to um, the topic of today's show. Um, our other co-host, Laura Osborne, who's the um, who's at London First, is not with us because of Brexit today, which is all-consuming in terms of negotiations. In fact, they're going on all over the world. As we're recording, Donald Trump is uh, talking to uh, talking in Vietnam, talking North Korea, and trying to get peace settlements in his own negotiation. And uh, back in the UK, they're still, as for the last two years, trying to work out how to leave the EU. So this episode of Changed My Mind, I should say, is brought to you by our sponsors, Stanford University's MSX program. The MSX program offers experienced leaders a one-year full-time accelerated master's degree at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Students known as Sloan Fellows come from all over the world. It's rigorous, immersive, inspiring, and transforms careers. I should say that I know because in 2017, I was lucky enough to be one of them. And it's where the idea for the depolarization project and this podcast were born. For more information, you can visit gsb.stanford.edu slash msx. So as I mentioned, today's show is about negotiation, and I'm really pleased to be able to introduce our guest, Maggie Margaret Neal. She's the Adams Distinguished Professor of Management at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Maggie's major research interests include bargaining and negotiation, which feels very pertinent. Um, She also looks at distributive work groups, team composition, learning and performance. Maggie's the author of over 70 articles on this topic and is a co-author of four books. Maggie's received her bachelor's degree in pharmacy, unusually, from Northwest Louisiana University, her master's from the Medical College of Virginia and Virginia Commonwealth University, and her PhD in business administration from the University of Texas. She's now returned to her native Texas and only makes it onto campus every once in a while. In Texas, she lives with her husband, her horse, Sal, who's the subject of her TEDx talk, getting more of what you want, negotiating with Sal. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's lovely to have you here. I just wanted to kick off by talking about, um, you're an expert on negotiation, and I was obviously lucky enough to be taught by you. But I'd love for our listeners to know the hallmarks of what you think is a, a good negotiation that works effectively. Well, many of my colleagues would say that the hallmark of a successful negotiation is getting to yes. But I don't agree. Um, for me, the successful hallmark of a negotiation is to get a good deal. And sometimes that means you have to walk away because the best deal you have may be what you had before you started. So what I tried to convey when I teach negotiation, and whether it's to students or to executives, is that you really need to think about negotiation not as a battle where there is a, you know, a fight between you and the other party 
where you're trying to get stuff from them that they don't want to give you. And they're trying to keep you from getting their stuff. Because if you think about negotiation in that way, you already have an uphill climb. So rather than thinking about negotiation as battle, you should think about negotiation as collaborative problem solving. And what that looks like is there are three dimensions. Number one, I as the protagonist am better off, better off than had I not negotiated, which may seem like a low bar until you admit that you have often taken deals that made you worse off. You voluntarily <laughs> agreed to be worse off, right? So number one, I need you to be better off than your alternatives, better off than your status quo, better off than had you not negotiated. And number two, I need you to understand who your counterparts are because there is no command and control in negotiation. I cannot force you to say yes. All that I can do is present proposals where you think it's in your interest to say yes. So if you can't answer the question, why would my counterpart say yes to me when I make this proposal, then you're not ready to negotiate. And third and most importantly, at least from my perspective, you need to frame your proposals as a solution to a problem that your counterpart has. And that makes negotiation more challenging because you have to not only be creative in figuring out how can I frame this proposal in a way that shows my counterpart how he or she can at least be kept whole or perhaps made better off by walking the path that I'm suggesting. But it also requires that you listen and prepare. Wow. So <laughs> I feel like you have just got a very condensed version of an incredible course that I was lucky enough to do with Maggie. But I couldn't help but notice that both Laura and I took an intake of breath at one point when you mentioned that um, it involved admitting that you might previously have not done very well in negotiation. Yeah, that's, that's exactly I what I was thinking, Ali. examples that were in front of mind when you were saying that. Yes. Well, I can certainly say it's true for me as well, right? We've all done that. Uh, but part of what I try to do is to get us to be better than our naturally occurring selves. <laughs> I was just going to say, Maggie, from an example's perspective, um, I think I can think of a lot of times that that happens in relationships where you <laughs> compromise too quickly and end up worse off. Yes. Um, well, how does that manifest itself in a business setting most often, do you think? Well, usually it manifests itself by people being so concerned with getting an agreement and seeing agreement as the only criteria by which they judge, am I successful or not? And so if, for example, you're negotiating and the situation is going in a way that makes you worse off, people oftentimes don't assert their ability to walk away. And they say, I need, I need this yes, I need this deal even though the deal now is arguably worse than before they started. And I, I just really wanted to bridge that into another area of your work, which I know I found that really useful when I've been talking to people about contracts or in an employment mm -hmm. sense. Just to know that I, I would walk away makes me feel more powerful. But I felt, you know, I guess as a woman, that's something I've, I've come to realise over time. And mm -hmm. I know that you've done a lot of work on mm -hmm. gender and diversity. And how typical is that? that journey I've been on, or do you find women tend to play, I realize it's not universal, but tend to play any particular roles in negotiations that they should be wary of or could actually extract more value for themselves? Well, the problem that women face is that the playing field is not level. So there are two big issues that women are, are dealing with when they negotiate. Number one is 
that on average, women have lower expectations of what they will achieve. So, and what happens then is, you, so you, you couple the low expectations of, well, you know, how much am I going to get if I try to negotiate with the backlash that occurs um, when women negotiate. So women are perceived as, more likely to be perceived as greedy or demanding when they negotiate. And that is so inconsistent with the expectation that most of society and societies have for women that they get a backlash, that people say, oh, well, you're greedy, you're demanding. And what they're really saying is, you're not making me feel good. And it turns out that one of the real roles that we women are supposed to embrace is to make other people feel good. Mm. And do you find it's helpful to almost call people out in negotiations when they're doing Well, I think the problem is not calling them out because you're likely then to just increase that kind of battle mentality. What I would suggest is you avoid that perspective altogether by this collaborative problem-solving approach. So when I frame my proposal as solutions to a problem that you have, it's really difficult for you to think of me as greedy or demanding when I'm helping you solve your problems. I think that's something that you hear when you approach pay negotiations, isn't it? That people talk about how you will add value and what you'll get in return for the money. And that's how you should approach it. I think Ali and I have talked about this before, though. Sometimes that doesn't come very naturally um, to some women as it seems to come to some men. So how, how do you think women can get more comfortable with that approach and negotiate for what they deserve in that scenario? Well, the first thing I would suggest, especially for women, is that 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 they not negotiate a single issue like pay, but rather they negotiate at the package level. So think about any type of compensation package or any type of uh, situation where you're you're about to think about considering a promotion. There are a whole lot of resources that you need in order to do your job well. And so rather than simply focusing on how much money am I going to get, because for women, especially when you have that notion of how much am I going to get, it's really hard to be collaborative and problem solving, right? So, I mean, the mm-hmm. obvious question is, you know, how can giving me more money help my counterpart solve a problem they have? But when I, pa- when I negotiate at the package level, I can include not only that additional money, but also the resources that can help me do my job better and doing my job better will reflect better on my, my, my boss and will reflect better and help the organization. And so therefore, by having this pool of resources available to me, I can make the world that my boss inhabits better off. That's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah, I'm going to try and channel that every time I have to do any kind of negotiation. Um, Maggie, we ask every guest who comes on the show to talk to us about an issue that they have changed mm-hmm. their mind on. And we'd love to hear what the issue you changed your perspective on. Well, my research changed my mind on this one. Um, so I can tell you that I grew up in the southern part of the United States. In fact, in the almost if you go any further south than where I grew up, you would need gills and fins. Um, so... Uh, but it was a it was a very traditional culture, and uh, I learned early on uh, by the behavior that I experienced from the people around me that I should be nice, that I should go along to get along, and that I should avoid conflict because conflict was not a good thing. 
And so I can tell you that my early adulthood was spent trying to contort myself to always be nice. <laughs> and um, eventually that I kind of came to the realization that that wasn't working out very well for me. <laughs> and as I continued my research and my studies in the area of conflict, um, I realized that, in fact, my assumption, my overarching assumption that conflict was bad was empirically wrong. There are types of conflict that are indeed problematic, but there's lots of conflict that are absolutely necessary for us to innovate, to be creative, um, and to solve problems. And was there any particular bit of research or dawning moment, or was it just gradual? Well, it, it was one of those things where um, I, knew it, I knew it intellectually before I knew it personally. Um, so, you know, I could talk to audiences about the importance of task conflict and innovation. Task conflict is necessary for value creation and negotiation. We have to have different perspectives coming together to figure out how to enlarge the pie. I could talk all about that, but I still really, really, really wanted to be liked. And so uh, it took a while to realize that um, that was a futile uh, aspiration because as one became more um, senior in one's position, whether that was in the academia, whether it was when I went into the dean's office, uh, whether it was out in the world when other folks were becoming more senior, as you move up in the organization, as you become a leader, you're not going to be liked by everybody. Because what leaders do is they move the organization forward. And whenever you move something forward, there are some people who get sort of hurt by that and they don't want it to happen. And so they see you as the stimulus for their pain. And so one of the things that I say over and over again, every time I talk, to, especially to groups of women in negotiation and about their negotiations is that you have got to figure out whether you want to be competent or you want to be liked. And the pursuit of everybody liking you is one that you probably won't succeed. But if liking is really, really important to you, then I have a suggestion. And I have a suggestion that has worked for me for decades. And that is, I have dogs. <laughs> That's brilliant. Maggie, I was just thinking as you were saying that, how did you make the transition from intellectually accepting that something needed to change to being able to give up that real need to be liked? Well, I'd love to say that it's that the transformation is complete and I don't care what other people think about me, blah, blah, blah. Well, the answer is completely not true. I do still want to be liked, but what I also want to be is I want to be helpful and useful in situations of which I'm a part. And that sometimes means that I have to say things um, to people. I can, a great example is with my doctoral students. Um, I often have to give them feedback, which is not going to make them happy. It's not going to make them like me. They're going to be just, you know, sort of very unhappy with the feedback. It's going to be painful, but it's necessary to do uh, in order to help them grow as, as scholars. Uh, and that's sort of where I learned it best was to watch that process and to watch how my mentors 
gave me advice that was painful and, and, and sometimes hurtful because I really wanted them to, to think I was really smart. And uh, sometimes mm -hmm. they had to let me know that I hadn't quite made the grade and what I needed to do to make that grade. And that is what I think is so important is that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't engage in conflict for the purposes of conflict or domination. I engage in task conflict to be able to have better outcomes. Just thinking about that in a business context and particularly with change in mind, how have you applied that when you need to put the needs of others um, in that sort of situation very much above your own need to be liked? Well, I think part of it is that you have, you have a greater goal in mind. Um, you know, being liked is pretty hedonistic. <laughs> I want people to like me, you know, so they, yeah. they think better of me. But that doesn't mean that I'm accomplishing what I need to accomplish. What, you know, and for me, and I gave you the example of my doctoral students, because training doctoral students and training a future generation of scholars is probably one of the most um, positive aspects of the job that I've had over these last 35 years of being an academic. And I look at the folks who are my academic children and grandchildren and now <laughs> great-grandchildren, and I'm really proud of what they are able to accomplish in expanding our understanding about a variety of different topics, some of which are related to what I do and some of which are completely different. But for me, it's the greater goal. It's that I want them to succeed, and in order for them to succeed, they, they need to be able to embrace not only, you know, sort of at-a-girl, at at-a-boy kind of accolades, but also the tough thing, the tough feedback that they need in order to improve their scholarship. And just to flip that round a little bit, is there a time when you've had feedback from one of your doctoral students that's made you change your mind or really challenged you that you can think of? Oh, of course there have been. In fact, um, for I remember very clearly one of my doctoral students, um, he's actually a faculty member at Harvard now, and he said, if I do negotiation research just like you, uh, people will just see me as a clone of you, and that's not what I want. What I'm really interested in, he said, is teams and team performance. And at that point, I didn't have a lot of expertise in teams. And I said, well, I don't have much expertise in that, so how can I be your doctoral advisor and advise you in a topic I don't know much about? And he said, you're smart. You can pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay. And so he and I began that journey together, uh, and it turned out to be one of the topics because, in many respects, creating, innovate, creating and managing innovative teams is a lot like creating and managing really good outcomes in negotiation. It's really about realizing the synergy that exists when two or more people get together and try to do something that's bigger than in each, in what any individual could accomplish or do. Yeah, and that's a fantastic example. Um, um, listeners, you might be wondering why we're not delving into some maybe more of the political elements and things that we occasionally go into with this show. And we talked to Maggie beforehand, and it was a negotiation where she let me know that she might walk away. <laughs> 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 I can but, um, Maggie was not terribly keen to talk about politics because you felt you didn't have expertise on it um, and mm -hmm. didn't really want to go there, which uh, I would say is such a welcome breath of fresh air. And, and I, I guess my question is, is there anything we could do to encourage more people to be as honest as you were with us, with, with what we're talking about or in general life and value experts a little bit more? Well, 
for me, the, the important is exactly that last phrase you said, valuing expertise. I am happy to opine on things that I have knowledge and empirical resources that I can use to, I mean, even if I haven't done the exact research that relates to the question you're asking, if I have research that is in the domain, uh, but I have not done work, nor do I plan on doing work in the area of political <laughs> negotiations, because those types of negotiations are very unique and oftentimes are extremely problematic for things that are unrelated to negotiation. Um, and so part of what for me is important is that I am true to my scholarly roots, to what I know and what I, what I can say with confidence. Um, and you know that even when I'm in class and somebody will ask a question that's sort of out in left field, I will say, there's no research that relates to that. But if you look at the following ideas, you might think that this might be a direction to consider, but we don't have empirical information on that. So I try to do the best I can to translate, but I have to stop sometimes and say, no clue, no clue. Thank you. And for listeners who do want to get bits, Maggie's very kindly going to signpost this at people who have done more research on political negotiations. So do check on the website to pick those up if you're really curious about that thank you sure i was just gonna follow up on your point earlier about having dogs yes have dogs yes i have three (laughs) have have they met that needs to be liked (laughs) oh my god i can tell you that that i'll come home today after work and my husband will say something like and my husband of 38 years will say something like oh how'd the day go and i'll go it went fine you know, I had a good time. I taught today, you know, this sort of thing happened, that sort of thing happened. And he'll go back to doing whatever he was doing when I came home. But my dogs are at the door going, you're home. Oh my God. (laughs) Life has been so boring. We thought you'd never return and our lives were miserable without you. My husband of 38 years has never said that to me. (laughs) So yes, three dogs. Awesome. They love me. Oh, that's good to know. I feel like it might be time to get a dog. (laughs) Do we think we can train our husbands to do that, Laura? (laughs) Ah, what? To wait at the door? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Probably not. (laughs) I might be able to uh, encourage him to make dinner occasionally, but I suppose that's probably all. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be fairly upset if he asked me to do the same in reverse, to be honest with you. I don't think you get very far. Um, Maggie, one final question from me, which is, um, we'd love to hear you almost nominate someone else that you'd love to know what they changed their mind on. Is there anyone that you'd love to answer the question that we asked you? Actually, there is. There are a couple of people that I think uh, would be great in answering that question, what have you changed your mind on? Uh, One of them is my colleague, Deborah Grunfeld, who does work in power and power fluency. And I just find her an absolutely uh, incredible and engaging speaker. And another person is Shelley Corral, who does work on gender here at Stanford and is pretty awesome and has really had a lot of impact on leveling the playing field. Brilliant. And I think we'll probably reach out to both of them. I'm curious, do either of them have dogs? Have they taken your advice uh, Deb has two cats. So, you know, she lives in a kind of a different world than I do. She has cats. And I actually don't know (laughs) what small furry animals Shelly has. I I feel like we'll need to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maggie, thank you 
Yeah. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to well, thank see you. you again. And thank yeah, you thank for coming you. in. And thank you very so much. All right. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Absolute pleasure. Thanks. So, listeners, that brings to an end our discussion with um, Maggie. Uh, We wanted to go through it and really dig into what she said. And I don't think I've ever heard Alex as frustrated as when she was attempting to get into this call and dealing with the very delayed train services of the UK. Um, But we're really fortunate that she's here to be able to help us digest what Maggie said. I was really gutted to miss this interview with Maggie. She has uh, a background in cognitive psychology. So understanding understanding the mechanisms and processes as to why we make the judgments and decisions that we do. And then she applied cognitive psychology to negotiations. And cognitive psychology is where I, uh, the area I did my, my master's in. So I would have loved to have spoken to her and asked her some more uh, kind of cog psych type questions. But hey-ho, uh, didn't get to make it because of the the trains, um, but really glad to be here now and able to uh, dissect what she said with you, Ali. So I guess I guess two things really stuck out for me. The first one, or the first um, her first point or major point, was around this uh, negotiation should be seen as collaborative problem solving, not combative or a battle. And that's that's, that's interesting because I think I always. I always see negotiations and particularly pay negotiations, which which is the example, the context that Laura mentioned, as as a battle and as something that should be com- combative. So reframing it as collaborative problem solving was interesting. And I thought it was similar to um, John Haidt. So John Haidt was one of our previous uh, Change My Mind podcast guests about finding and communicating the super, what he called the superordinate goal not what the differences are. Do you remember him talking about that? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I think it's, it is it is really interesting that it can be a much more effective way to... It's hard to fight against someone who says they're working in your interest, right? That, that, that creates some dissonance, doesn't it? Exactly. And it, it was also, this point, I guess, about finding common ground was also similar to Steve Martin's point about finding... So Steve Martin, remember, came on again. He was another Change My Mind guest uh, about your time. So he's talking about in finding what's common between you and someone else to be able to successfully influence them. So do you remember the the football study that Steve described by the psychologist Mark Levine? So the study um, was where someone on the floor was injured and uh, where that person was wearing a Manchester United shirt. Other Manchester United fans were much more likely to help them, so like 92% of the time. When that injured person was wearing a Liverpool shirt or a neutral shirt, only around 30% of... um, of, of people actually uh, actually go to help. So I think so I think finding that common ground on what's common at the start of any negotiation can can probably help the smooth smooth the path ahead. Um, but th- this is the this is this is what I was thinking is is actually do we also need to be aware of being affected by irrelevant cues? So for example, finding out that someone supports the same football team as you to make sure we come away with a better deal rather than just a yes. Well, yeah, I <laughs> I completely, I agree with that. And that really stood out to me when Maggie was talking, you know, kind of being aware of our own 
biases and how much that can affect yeah. negotiations. I mean, both that you can get played, you know, I mean, it, it is interesting that there's four women on this podcast and all of us seem to have had a moment where we thought we'd been played. Oh yes, that's my, that's my second point about the women. I'm going to come on to that in a minute. Oh yes, but carry on. But, but I think it kind of in the context of current politics, that actually they're really... There's something in that, that if you don't genuinely both want to reach a similar or have an overlapping goal, it's almost impossible to collaborate and to reach a conclusion. So that might be why it's so incredibly difficult for Donald Trump, who's in favor of building the wall here on the border with Mexico, to reach any kind of reconciliation with Democrats, because, you know, in the end, it ended up with him declaring a national emergency, which is all escalating the rhetoric. And you don't really get any reward in politics often for being collaborative. You know, you want to be able to mark yourself out and show that you're something different people can vote for. And that strikes me as a way that the system particularly falls down. Absolutely. It's not just politics as well. It's also in in business or any, I think any big organization where the rhetoric is very much around the importance of collaboration and breaking down silos and working across departments. But actually, when you look at incentivization, and I mean both financial incentives, so, you know, pay, bonuses, but also social incentives. So who's getting respected, who's getting um, praised, who's getting the status. It's all in, it's all at an individual level. You do not get incentivized at, at a team or, you know, a, a team or more than one person level to collaborate. So I think in practice, it's it's very, very, it's really important, but very, very hard. Yeah. And I think when you've constantly, so I agree with you completely about business, but from a political angle, when you're continually facing elections, which as a general point, I quite like because it means people are constantly feeding back. Um, but actually it does ratchet up the pressure to be able to be distinctive and maybe not to collaborate. You know, you need some space to to do that mm-hmm. um you know and it, it really is it's a it's a it's a bit of a downside yeah um you know because and I'm not sure how often voters reward compromise particularly in in a well US and UK where it's traditionally been a two-party thing you know um junior coalition partners don't tend to do very well I was just going to say that on the coalition <laughs> government yeah. yeah, yeah, they're not. It's not renowned as a as a route to success, is it? Um, I say, I say, looking at my former party, which went from like nearly sixty MPs to eight. Oh, Woo-hoo, and that that stunning triumph. Yeah. Um, but let's Alex, circle. Let's, talk, yeah, oh, talking about the women. I was going to say, let's circle back to the women. So this this is this is her second point that really resonated uh, with me personally about women should be nice and avoid conflict. Yeah. So uh, I think both. I think I'm 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 definitely one of those people that wants needs needs to be liked, but it's shocking or it's really 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 frustrating, really bloody annoying actually that as a woman you you can't be seen to be competent and and liked. So it's a bit like the fate, you know, the Howard Howard Heidi um, study given to MBA students. So you get Tell this, us a bit more about that. Yeah. So so typically, so someone or these MBA students are presented with a description of someone who's very successful called Howard. So he's a venture capitalist, uh, got great network. He was a you know power player in Silicon Valley. He worked at Apple, you know, Steve Jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So after studying this description, students are then asked to evaluate Howard's performance. And they typically tend to rate Howard as, as very competent and effective and also that they really like him and would be willing to um, hire him and or work with him. But Howard does not actually exist. It's actually really Heidi. And when 
students are given the identical case study, but Howard is instead described as a woman. It's actually Heidi. What happens is that students students find Heidi just as competent and as effective as Howard, but they don't like her. Yeah. So and, and, and fact, this finding has been replicated. So basically, women what this what this study women cannot be liked and be seen as competent, which is frigging hard. I think it's really difficult. And what's really interesting is actually I know the Heidi that you're talking about is Heidi Rosen, oh, who's at, yes. who's also teaches at Stanford, and she's fantastic. Um, but um, but it's such a it's a it's a very weird small world here sometimes. Um, but uh, yeah, I completely um, agree with you that it's really hard to actually give difficult feedback or make difficult decisions or sometimes just be a bit of a bit of a pain and and be respected as a woman that feels like a very different um challenge to one that that men face yeah well and also we have i think this is this is men as well but maybe more so for women is that fundamental motivation to belong you know belong and be liked and it's interesting because in in something in a context like sales uh, where the number one rule is, you know, to sell effectively, you first need to be liked. That doesn't seem to translate to negotiations. Coming back to, to Maggie's point, and also in it's interesting in politics as well. Let's let, let's get Heidi on or some kind of you know or a political scientist because I think I think this is a really interesting area in terms of gender being liked versus being competent in in yeah. politics and in business. How you get around it? Well, and I mean, that's it? interesting. I could see uh, you weren't in the room with Maggie, but when we asked her to nominate other people, she almost rubbed her hands with glee <laughs> about nominating her colleague, Deborah Grunfeld, to talk about gender and yes. the, the impact of it. And I, I do find that slightly, because it's quite a hard question we ask people about a time they change their mind and why, you know, and Maggie did, She initially she didn't have an answer. And then she was like, no, I need to go and think about this and, and come back to you. And then came back with clearly a brilliant and really honest one um but it's yeah like I think we'll go and and pick it up um and see see what people what people say the other thing that I just really wanted to to pick up from what Maggie said and I'm very aware of her own biases here but that she didn't want to talk about the political side of things because she felt she didn't have expertise in it and uh, you know I'm sure you could do a gendered analysis of that as well but how can you encourage more of that in the world and clearly you know Maggie is an academic so she values really will value expertise because she spent an entire lifetime building it up Um, but you know like what is it that means that people find it so uncomfortable to say you know I just don't know or I need to go away and read more about that or there's someone better to answer that question yeah it's it's probably it's probably maybe also because she works in such a I guess empirical research-based evidence-based context that she you just become averse to talking about things that you you give more of a subjective opinion on but I wonder if that I wonder if that happens with you know it's the same extent with guys whether they're much more whether they're much happier to talk about things that actually they don't know much about um but as long as they sound as long as they have the, the confidence then then they can well it's all very Dunning Kruger curve is that how you say it I should definitely know how to say that rather than just yeah done the Dunning Kruger effect yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, where people are, and certainly I know I do this, when I know a tiny amount of, about something, I feel like I'm a, definitely a global expert on it. And then the more I find out about it, the, the less confident I am of some of the views that I have. Yeah, um, well, this is, yeah, this is, this is, um, this is really interesting. It's, it's also called, there's also something called this illusion of ex- explanatory depth, where people feel they understand a lot more about the world than they actually do. So for example, about how toilets work or about how a zip works. Um, and actually they found in in political circles, when you ask people to explain why they hold the positions they hold, um, 
that it, it knew it moderates people's uh, extreme views. So actually, when people are forced to think, mm, actually, why do I think that, you know, for example, the UK should exit Brexit? Like what, you know, how do I explain the, the reasons for why I think what I think? Uh, it then it then makes it then moderates people's views and they become much less extreme. Extreme. So there is something about how much how much you know and having to explain it, and and the, the I guess the political positions you hold. It's, it's, that's, that's probably someone else we should get on as well. We yeah, I think we definitely should on that because there's also times when I think it's really hard to be articulate about why you feel certain things and Brexit definitely feels that if you look at like I was saying at the negotiations at the minute if people in in the states have a view about Korea maybe because they thought they're and they're a veteran but it's a really blinking complex issue yeah you know and uh, and I think it's quite it was particularly hard in that situations sometimes articulate why you are feeling what you are feeling or if it's something personal that affects you or your family of course there's quite a lot of evidence that it's harder to be rational yeah um, and yeah. go from there oh gosh Alex I feel like we could keep talking all day about Maggie I know she was brilliant I was again gutted to miss this interview with Maggie I thought she was brilliant I would love to get her back on change my mind podcast and I'm really resenting Southwest Rail so US listeners that's the the railway or the net railway provider in the UK that that brings me from uh, London back back home who messed up on this particular evening that we were recording with with Maggie. yeah so apologies, Maggie. Yeah, well, and people can find out more about um, Maggie and her book, Getting More of What You Want. There'll be links to buy that online. Um, as always, oh, we're really grateful to uh, Open Democracy, who shared this with their many readers, to Caroline Crampton, who edits the show for us and is our wonderful producer. And you can get more information about this at depolarizationproject.com. This episode of Change My Mind was brought to you by our wonderful sponsors, Stanford University's MSX programme. The MSX programme offers experienced leaders a one-year full-time accelerated master's degree at Stanford Graduate School of Business. That means that you get contact with really great professors like Maggie Neal and I know because I was one of them. For more information about the MSX program, you can visit gsb.stanford.edu msx. Leaving you now will be the music from Kevin McLeod. Uh, we're really grateful to be able to use it. It's licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>